Hello, welcome to another episode of Call Convos. Today we will be trialling a new format. Yeah, it's very exciting. We'll be inviting some of our very special friends onto the um, convo to talk about exciting things in their lives and things that they're passionate about. Our first guest for this new series is our good friend Zachary Murphitt. And so I know Zach from uni. We first met at a Christian club um, on campus. And then since we were both doing science-related um, topics, we had some units that overlapped. And so we hung out a lot through uni. And Suze, how do you know Zach? Well, I met Zach um, initially at a friend through a friend um, at their church. But one day he randomly rocked up at my church and was in my life group and so we just got to become better friends through that and yeah it's been it's been a good journey ever since then I think it's been like six years Hmm. yeah and when Suze and I were brainstorming ideas for this new series Zach was definitely top of the list one because we've name dropped him multiple times (laughs) on our podcast very spontaneously Uh, but also because he's someone that at least I really look up to and I think he's someone who has convictions and values in his life that he really sticks to and lives by and, and is always seeking to be a better person, um, to know God more and to be a better friend and person overall. So enjoy yeah. the episode. Yeah, we hope you guys enjoy this one. Hi, Sue. Hello. Good afternoon. Recording in the new year now, so happy new year. Happy new year to everyone. Um, and we're also recording this in person. Yay! Which is fun. Number <laughs> two. Second episode in person. Um, and we've got something special for everyone today, Suze. What is it? <laughs> well, usually with call combos, it's just the two of us. But today, there's three people in the room. <gasps> Dialed in a third person. <laughs> yes. Um, so today we'll be interviewing one of our good friends, Zach Murphitt. You! Zachary Murphitt, welcome to Keen. the pod. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Very honoured to be the first guest. <laughs> um, so if you all have been paying attention to our podcast, we have name-dropped Zach a few times. So comment or email us if you remember which episodes those were in. <laughs> um, but since we name-dropped Zach so many times, we thought it was fitting that... We interview him as our first guest. So, um, Zachary Murphitt was born in 1996. Oh, she's really good. <laughs> okay, um, for the year of birth, that's a good start. I think that's the most significant yeah, thing I've done. Yeah. Yeah, I was, was, was be born. That was the peak. It's all <laughs> yeah. downhill. It's all downhill from there. Born in Warrigal, were you? Mm, yeah. Very good. Grew up Warrigal. in Warrigal. Grew up in Warrigal. Spent a few years in Clayton. He was in Melbourne, yep. And southeast. now he's back in Warrigal. Temporarily. And then I'll okay. be back in Melbourne. Yes. Soon after. Mm-hmm. The culture shock of being in Clayton was too much for you, Zach. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yep. It was uh, it was quite the transition. Mm. Um Yeah, anyway. <laughs> Tell us more. <laughs> <laughs> Warrigal's very undiverse, if you mm. can if that's a word. Yeah. And so like at my high school there were maybe three or four people that weren't Caucasian Australians. And that was the most diverse we got. Uh, and then <laughs> come to Melbourne and I'm the I'm the minority, mm-hmm. which is just quite funny. And I'll get picked on for being white, right? Um, white bait, they called me. Uh, white bait. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he was there for the formation of that. Um, but no, it's good. I love, I love Melbourne. I love diversity. Just mm. keep that on record. Yeah. <laughs> So you've done quite a few things in the past few years. Um, did you did you finish your uni degree? You did. You did yeah, honors. I did. <laughs> I did with honors. Yeah. <laughs> <Bachelor>, um, <laughs> Not much faith there, but yeah. Science, global science, nutrition. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> edit this out. <laughs> uh, it was Bachelor of Science, global challenges. So it was, I was like pretty close. yeah, you're pretty, yeah, you're pretty good. <laughs> it was mostly science with some leadership and communication and entrepreneurship mm-hmm. thrown in. Really good, really good course. Then went on to do my Master's of Dietetics. Well, started my Master's of Dietetics. You just, started it. You just skipped your whole honours, yeah? Oh, yeah. 
Yep, did honors. That was also part of the, it was a package deal with the course. Ah, uh, right. Um, worked with the San Diego Zoo on sustainable mm-hmm. zoo animal feed. So I went to San Diego and stayed there. That was did a lot you? of fun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep. University paid trip to San Diego. Oh, nice. That was, uh, was quite nice. How long were you there for? A couple of weeks. Arrived in San Fran, drove down and uh, spent about 10 days in San Diego. Nice. It was good. And then started my master's in dietetics, mm-hmm. then decided to defer it and started again. A year later, then deferred it again, and started it again a year later after that, and then just dropped it all altogether. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> not not because of the course. The course is good. So I have so, a few icebreaker <laughs> questions for you, Zach. Heck yeah. Just so everyone can get to know you <clears throat> deep down. Um, my first question is, what is something you hated as a child but loved as an adult, or mm. vice versa? So loved as a child but hated growing up. Yeah. Not hate it, hate it as an adult. Sorry, as, as, yeah, as an adult. Or the other way around. <laughs> All the other way around. I didn't like avocado <gasps> as a kid. Oh. I now massively get around avocado. <laughs> um, what, yeah. What I caused the shift? I don't know. I think I just... <laughs> well, I had a bad experience when I was a kid. Grew some dreadlocks. The avocado. dreadlocks helped. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely helped with the acquired taste of avocado. Um, I used to be super anxious as a kid. And in like very, it's probably come out a bit when we um, talk about some other stuff later, but like I used to feel very afraid for very minor reasons, um, whether it was physical safety or like social situations, uh, which is funny now because most people would, most people are very surprised to hear that. Yeah, when I tell them that now. it surprises <laughs> me to hear that. It's, um, it's very different to how most people perceive me now. And, and now I'm not very risk averse at all. Exactly um, or, the opposite. Yeah. You're pro risk. <laughs> as risk. much risk as possible. <laughs> and um, that that's that's probably the most noticeably different thing. Mm. Maybe similar to that. As a kid I used to be quite pedantic about various things. Whereas now I I'm not, not particularly pedantic. Mm. Um, yeah, that's probably that's probably the one that stands out the most, yeah. I think. It's very interesting. Yeah. Mm. I used to not like running and now I like running. Oh, okay. So there's another one. Did you wear shoes as a child? Yep. Maybe, maybe that was why. <laughs> I had a skewed idea of what running was like. Shoes ruined it for me. The moment you took them off, you're like, I'm free. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> this is what I was born to do. Exactly. Ooh, very good answer. Um, we'll do one more question. Um, describe your dream life. Dream life? <laughs> yeah, right. <clears throat> I, so as a kid, up until about year 10, so about sixteen, I was dead set on becoming a snake milker. That was my oh, that was I my that. that was my ideal profession. So so to get anti venom, so when someone's been bitten by a snake, yeah, they they have anti venom which treats the the venom right. And the way they get that is they milk the snake, so take venom from snakes, mm. and they do some. Um, they actually use horses, and they they use low amounts of venom to create antibodies, and then wow. harvest the antibodies, and that that is how you get the anti venom. Um, <laughs> I remember watching this doco as a kid. And there was this guy in Papua New Guinea, and where he was, where he was traveling through, where he was working, there weren't enough snakes in captivity to milk. So, so milking snakes is when you sort of grab them and um, push their fangs through like a like a glide wrap sort of mm-hmm. seal and, and sort of squeeze the venom out. And yeah. that's, how you, that's how you harvest it. And uh, where he was, there weren't enough snakes in captivity. And so what he would do is catch them out of the wild. These like very very dangerous snakes, milk them, then I think release them. And then use that to produce antivenom, um, and use the antivenom to to benefit the communities and and prevent people from dying from snake bite. And, and when I, as a kid, when I saw that, I was like, "That's like that's it. Like, that's the dream." <laughs> I think so. The the specific vocation of snake milking has switched. <laughs> I, I, although I still think it would be amazing. I'm not dead set on doing that anymore. But I think that that sort of vision encapsulates what I still feel like I'm moving towards. If that makes sense. So, so those details specifically aren't necessarily it, but yeah. the feel of all that kind of lifestyle is is still like, like that's the first thing that comes to mind when you say mm-hmm. dream lifestyle. Yeah. Okay. I think something now in the, in the journalism space is more um, headed, but yeah, maybe that, that speaks to things as to mm-hmm. what's sort of going on in my heart maybe more than I know. Yeah. 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 Cool. I feel like I've learned more about you in the past five minutes than... <laughs> A whole friendship. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Maybe we should podcast more often just to yeah. get into it. All right. Well, Zach, you've mentioned a bit about all the time off that you took from studying. And we know that you went on a few different trips around the world. Can you mm. tell our listeners some of the places that you went and why you went to those places? Yeah, for sure. So, most notably, there was about seven months in Indonesia. There was seven or eight months in Indonesia. A month or two month, month or two months around other parts of Southeast Asia. So, um, Thailand and Singapore, Malaysia. And before that, I did a separate trip. I did two months to Central Asia. So, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, and a few days in Afghanistan. Central nice. Asia, that's the word we were looking for. Yeah. <laughs> Zach went to the Stan country. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't sound geographically correct. <laughs> the Stans, as, um, as they're more commonly known, yeah. 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 Um, both excellent trips for different reasons. Mm. Cool. What are, you, what are you interested in? Um, well, how about we start off with Indonesia? Yeah, sure. So what were you doing there and what brought you to Indo? <clears throat> yeah, so I've, I've had Indonesia on my heart for quite a while. Mm-hmm. It started with my mother who lived there before she was married. Uh, I traveled there. It was the first place I went overseas when I was quite young. And I think there was something about seeing my mum speak the language that really spoke to me. Mm-hmm. We, we were there with friends of my mum to, it was a Bible dedication. So they just finished translating the New Testament into the local language in this specific part of Indonesia. And so we were there for the celebration of that. Only a few days, but great time. Uh, really awesome to just be exposed to international travel for the first time. And yeah, seeing my mum navigate that, I think was really inspiring, actually. Mm-hmm. And then studied it all the way through school. Been in Indonesia several times. Here and there for different reasons, and um, I've always wanted to spend an extended period of time there. So, being there for for six months or more gives you a different feel and a different taste and a different set of experiences that you can't get when you're there for a for a short period. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was part of it, and then I was there helping some some friends, uh, some missionary friends, doing some different things. I was just helping out with. I actually had initial plans to travel around a bit, but when COVID mm-hmm. hit, things sort of locked down. So. Taught some English, did a medical course for a couple of months, uh, and just helped out where I could. All right. What's something that you miss about the Indonesian culture since coming back to Australia? Yeah. <laughs> I miss climbing coconut trees <laughs> and eating fresh coconuts. Yeah. <laughs> like, they, they're so fresh. And when you cut them open with the machete, it's just so delicious. Mm. Uh, so where, where I was staying, was a, it was like a big base. There were maybe 100, 150 people living on the base and so very very communal living mm-hmm. uh I, I was for the most part i was sharing a room with one or two other guys yep a room that was um smaller than my bedroom now and so there's another guy in there and and so there was very little time to myself or at least there was very little private space mm. which for some people is a nightmare <laughs> for me it was something that i quite enjoyed Oof. Yeah. And, I, and i think also being surrounded by people of, of different ages so there's all the kids there varying ages there's the young adults there um there's the older older people and the um the elderly and that, that was just nice being on the same people all the time mm. like here often we have communities but they're quite separated so you might have your church community but you only interact with your church community when you go there on on sunday and then maybe mm. one during the week yeah. um, you have your sport community but you only interact with them when you go to training and then go to the game or whatever Whereas there, it was like you were in the same people for church, for sport, for everything all the time. Mm. It was nice. It was nice. Yeah, it's like you're really doing life together. Yeah. And you get to see every aspect of the person. Yeah, exactly. Yep. And and the schedule became a lot less packed because, well, partly because we were in lockdown while mm. I was there. Um, but it just meant you were always free to spend time with the same people. Mm. And there was, there was something quite rich about that. Whereas now, you know... We, if you want to see someone, you sort of got to book a few weeks in advance, right? And yeah. lock in two hours. Or sit there, it was like, oh, we want to talk about this? We'll just come over for dinner tonight. Yeah, no worries. Mm. Of course, I'll just wander over when I'm ready. Mm. Um, yeah, it was good. Yeah. <laughs> that sort of communal living, that's very much different to what the Western style of living is like at the moment. Yeah, 100%. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's other things that make it easier too, like the weather's always warm. So mm. being inside isn't particularly nicer than being outside. Whereas here, you know, often it's too hot or too cold and... Whereas there, you just you may as well be outside. Like it's mm-hmm. no different. Um, yeah, just stuff like that. That's cool. 
Were there any introverts? Or do you think introvert <laughs> introversion is like a, something made up by the Western society? <laughs> because I feel like in a lot of um, countries where there's more poverty, it's like you're never really alone because you're sharing a room with someone or like there's just people around all the time. Hmm. So what do you make of that? Why don't we send you over there, Susan? <laughs> <laughs> record, record you for six months and see what happens. <laughs> I actually don't know. I... I suspect... I've done no research on this. I don't know. I suspect there are still introverts and extroverts. Yeah. Um, it's just you get less time alone or mm. have to work harder to, to make that time. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or perhaps even there's an increased familiarity with family and so they can satisfy that quote-unquote alone time mm. without being actually alone by themselves. Yeah. yeah. That yeah. makes sense. Yeah. We'll find out. <laughs> <laughs> Is Indonesia somewhere that you think of living long-term in the future? It's definitely an option. Mm. Yep. I don't feel like I have any specific instructional decisions around that yet, but it's definitely definitely an option, mm. for sure. That's awesome. Yeah, I love the place. Mm. Very awesome country. Very diverse. Mm. Can, Great can, people. Can you speak the language? Yeah, so I studied Indonesian all the way through. Um, <laughs> can speak it. Uh, it feels like just not enough or just not as much as I would like. <laughs> so, mm. Like every time you improve a bit, you just, you, you want sort of just to know a little bit more. Yeah. Um, I, the medical course I did was in Indonesian and that was really good for my language. Mm. Um, I'm really glad I did that. Yeah. But yeah, there's always, it's like the more you learn, the more you realize there is to, yeah. to learn and grow. So mm. yeah, enough to have fun. Like, like most of the young people I was there with, they were all Indonesian and couldn't speak English. And so we'd hang out. Yeah, cool. And I'd just try and laugh when everyone else was laughing, <laughs> as if I got the joke. <laughs> no, was, good. was it hard to transition back to English, or were you having like con- constant upkeep of English during your time in Indo? Yeah, there were quite a few Westerners on the base, and so we would we would talk in English whenever mm-hmm. we chatted. And so I never really had to sort of transition out of English or, mm-hmm. or back into it. Yeah, yeah I used it enough to. It was still there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Nice. And Aussie English has a lot of slang. Is there a lot of slang in Indonesian as well? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, and that's probably the hardest thing to, to grasp, right? Like, mm. when, when it gets to slang, there are no real rules. Um, things mean things just for completely arbitrary reasons. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's harder to catch the accent. Subtleties make a big difference. Humours, it's not just the language, but there's also layers and layers to, to what a, a people group find funny and, and why mm. it's funny. And, and then, of course, in Indonesia, you've, got, you've actually got a different local language everywhere you are. And so the region I was in, there were there were a handful of other languages around. Mm-hmm. And so mo- most people English, sorry, Indonesian is one of either their first or second language. Mm-hmm. But most of them speak another language at, mm-hmm. at home or a large amount of them. Um, yes, then you've got other other things going on as well. Yeah. If I had more time, I'd love to learn one of the, the local local languages there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Next time. <laughs> Next trip. Next trip, yeah. <laughs> Um, so you said that you also went to the Stan countries. Yeah, Stans. Was that that was before you went to Indonesia, or was that after? Before. So I've been to Indonesia several times, but not before the big before the big trip. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why did you decide to visit those countries? <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. I uh, one that I got a lot when I was in Afghanistan, as well. <laughs> Why are you here? <laughs> um, I wanted somewhere that was a bit different. Went somewhere that I didn't know much about, mm. somewhere that was less visited. Mm. I was also interested in going to it, so the, the stands fit all those categories, so I didn't know anything about them. Um, didn't really know anybody who knew anything about them. I was interested in going somewhere where Christianity was under persecution. Mm. Right. And that was something that I was interested in just experience, not experiencing from a, just um, getting a closer look at, yeah. I suppose. And the stands actually offered that really well because that they range quite a bit as to how much persecution goes on, mm. depending on the country. And so obviously in Af- Afghanistan, it's, it's quite extreme. The other stands is more subtle, nuanced, um, even institutional sort of ways of, of persecution. And so that was good to to see what that was like from the inside. Mm. And I didn't, the amazing thing was I didn't know anybody when I, when I left. Mm. Um, and so when you went to the stand? Yeah, yeah. So I was visiting a couple of friends from Australia mm-hmm. in the stands, but I didn't know any locals. Yeah. And it was, I wanted to get co- connected to the local church somehow. Uh, and I, I didn't have any connections and uh, God just provided the guy next to you on the plane, one plane flight, one hour plane flight. 
Turns out he was a missionary. Oh, wow. In Tajikistan. We got yeah. chatting. <laughs> he goes, oh, he goes oh, look, when you get off the plane, it's, you're probably going to take like three hours to get your visa. Um, but he's, he's obviously got a visa, so he just go, he just go straight through. Mm. He arrived at 1 a.m. in the capital of Tajikistan. He said, look, here's my address. If you can find me any time of the night, doesn't matter what time you get out, come come knock That's on my amazing. door. Have a better stay in. <laughs> Uh, yeah, sure enough, right. He, he walked straight through, and then I was there for a couple of hours, and got in a taxi at like two a.m., three a.m. Went to this guy's house and knock on the door, and then, hey Zach, hey, you made it, nice work. Comes out with no shirt on. Yeah, no worries, we're gonna be here. You can stay here. <laughs> so, That's so cool. Stayed with him and his family for a, a night or two. Yeah, it was fantastic. And then, and then from him, got connected with churches all through Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan. Went on a youth camp in Kyrgyz, Christian youth camp in Kyrgyzstan. Um, and then got connected up with other people, and it just I had more opportunities in the end than I than I had time for. So yeah, nice. it was, uh, yeah, it was really amazing. Praise oh, God. That's so incredible. Cool. Yeah. Um, as a Christian yourself, Zach, how did this trip impact your faith? So, so on the on the topic of of persecution, it was it was interesting to see what daily life was like, especially in Afghanistan. One of the one of the encouraging things was in in Kyrgyzstan was to see people active about sharing their faith despite despite um, what's the word kickback despite mm-hmm. uh, some quite serious negative implications and you know that was that was really cool it's something we do here with a lot of freedom which oftentimes we can take for granted and to see them still doing it despite there being very real risks and possibly sacrifice was was something that was really cool to see mm. um yeah and then just just seeing god answer prayers both the one about meeting people there and, mm. and then other things throughout was was really cool as well mm. and did it impact your view on persecution and like now when you're back in australia and when people here talk about persecution like <laughs> yeah what do you think about all of that yeah <laughs> Yeah, it's a good question. It's one of those those topics where perspective helps a lot. Mm. Uh, I, I personally feel that sometimes people can use the word persecution more lightly than what it what it should be used, mm. or thrown around. Um, whereas, in, it it might not necessarily be the best word for what's happening. Uh, I th- I think also that. It is difficult to, without having the range of experience, it is difficult to say what's a fair assessment of of um, persecution or justice or treatment uh, without something to sort of calibrate, calibrate it against. Like someone here who suffers suffers something can can feel you know as persecuted or also as as other places where more serious things are happening. And it's not necessarily because they're ignorant or, or ungrateful or anything. Mm-hmm. It's just a matter of, of perspective and experience. And and it doesn't even mean the suffering is necessarily worse as well. Um, objectively, you could say that some things are, are far worse. I mean, you much prefer to be called a few names than um, be beaten up and have your jaw broken and have to leave the country. But also, suffering can be very relative to your situation. So, yeah, it's a tricky one, but I think it's a good, a good thing to get a wider grasp on yeah for sure yeah yeah is this something you would recommend to other christians as well to um put themselves in opportunities where they get to see what persecution really looks like in different contexts to their own yeah i think so i, I don't think that necessarily means going there mm. i think you can get a pretty good uh you know we have access to so much information now mm. you, you can learn a lot through through books through stories through documentaries um, meeting people face to face and hearing stories is is definitely the best. I mean, you, you can't sort of beat that. Mm. And going there is is definitely good, but um, only if you really felt that it was it was what you only if you felt comfortable going mm. going there. But I think you can develop a pretty good perspective just mm. just from exposing yourself to yeah. information. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. Mm, that's cool. So we have a final question about your travels. Yeah, sure. So something Susan and I have heard other people talk about in terms of their reasons for travelling um, is twofold. One, they're either trying to run away from something <laughs> or trying to run towards something and trying to find some sort of meaning or purpose. Hmm. 
Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be just one of those two, but if you were to describe kind of your motivations for travel, what do you think that would come under? <laughs> if you ask any of the aunties in Indonesia, the first thing they say is, oh, you're here trying to find a wife. <laughs> in Indonesian. Yeah, thanks, auntie. <laughs> Unsuccessful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that hasn't been working out so well, but that was, that was a pretty common, uh, pretty common guess. A lot of the reason for traveling was to broaden my perspective. There are some key people in my life who I see as possessing a lot of wisdom and insight into the world, human nature, mm. human condition, God, God's heart, the way people and God interact, and and how that has been shaped by their experiences in different cultures and um, travel different places, different experiences. There's something about that that's quite desirable and that I, I desire for myself to have that level of, of sort of perspective and insight and wisdom. And so I think that's one of the key reasons. So, so in answer to your question, I would say that's moving towards yeah. a, way, mm. a way of viewing the world that's richer. Mm. Um, and things like, you know, getting a perspective on, on different types of suffering or, yeah. um, you know, different things, being, being comfortable with different levels of uncertainty and risk. I mean, you, you improve those things. Mm. Like you, you sleep on the street a couple of times and then, you know, all of a sudden not having somewhere to sleep that night doesn't feel like such a big deal or mm. you go hungry for a few days and all of a sudden not having food is like not such a big deal yeah. anymore. <laughs> you know, yeah. things like that. So that's what I would say. I don't think I'm running away from anything. <laughs> Could be wrong. I, I think I think travel is like a lot of things. Um, some people some people have a healthy relationship with it. Mm. Some people don't. The, the, the sort of key indicator is whether their travel is compulsive or not mm. or, or whether they're avoiding something. Mm. Um, and I think there's a few ways to measure that. Yeah. I think um, I think I'm not running away from anything. But that's good. <laughs> <laughs> that's <great>. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of glory and magnificence out there. Mm. I would say that's what I'm running towards. Yeah, and I feel like that um, kind of ties in really smoothly to the next thing that we <laughs> wanted to talk about. Brilliant. Um, we've titled this section "Your Life Philosophies." <laughs> <laughs> And one of the um, life philosophies that S and I have noticed about you is um, essentialism. Mm. Would we be accurate in saying that? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm working on it. But yeah, I yeah. think that's something. I... <laughs> so um, for those people who don't know, do you want to just explain a little bit about what essentialism means? Mm. Just to clarify, you're talking about essentialism, not minimalism. Well... You can clarify the differences as well. Sure. <laughs> the, the answer is yes to both. But, okay. But yeah. yeah. Um, at risk of a copyright infringement. So Essentialism is actually a book. <laughs> um, and it's a very good book. And so this is not, this is not my idea, but this is what I want to say. Um, I don't really deserve any of the credit for, for any of this. Um, essentialism is the idea that very few things matter. Most of life is noise are not particularly relevant mm -hmm. and it's important to focus on the very few things that matter a lot and not get distracted with the the many things that matter very little yeah. and that's everything from how you spend your time to how you spend your money to how you invest in relationships um to how you spend your time working what you focus on mm. and then minimalism is basically the same concept but applying to stuff so it's 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 there's a lot of overlap minimalism is basically this idea that less is more when it comes mm -hmm. to stuff and there's a lot of benefits to be gained from owning very little material things yeah um that's the general principle yeah yeah nice very well defined <laughs> <laughs> um so when did you first stumble across like these concepts and what drew you towards them yeah um greg mckinn is the author of essentialism as well <clears throat> thanks greg <laughs> shout out <laughs> <laughs> shout out to greg good mate of mine no he's not he's way too cool for me um Minimalism, I think, is one of those things that's been around for a while now. Mm -hmm. so most people have been exposed to it at some point, sort yeah. of floats around. I don't remember my first exposure to it as an idea. Essentialism, I do. A friend sent me a podcast where Greg McKeon was being interviewed. Mm -hmm. Listened to that. Really enjoyed it. Went and bought the book. Read the book several times. <clears throat> and that was probably the key, key uh, way that I was introduced to that mm -hmm. idea. I mean, it's part of a much bigger school of thought. And so there's information and ideas and, and things that I've been exposed to in the past and, and probably a lot of thoughts that I'd, or ways of thinking or living that I'd already sort of subscribed to or, mm. or aligned to. Essentialism was what brought it all together and put words to everything and gave like some very solid frameworks. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
Sorry, was that your question? Um, yeah, and like, I guess, what drew you to Oh, what drew me, yeah, good question. <clears throat> so I think there's... One of the key themes with both essentialism and minimalism is this idea of freedom. Mm. So in one sense, having more stuff, it's always a trade-off, right? So in one sense, having more stuff gives you freedom in some areas. And in one sense, having less stuff gives you freedom in some areas. And, and, you know, that's just a trade-off. Having tasted the type of freedom that's available when you have less stuff, Mm. that was something I found that I very much enjoyed and it was very conducive to the lifestyle I wanted to live. So travel, travel is probably one of the best examples. I mean, the less you have, the easier it is to travel. Mm. The more versatile you are, the easier it is to travel. And, and the desire for versatility is, is something that has also governed some of my other decisions. Like, so, for example, sleeping on the floor. Um, the, the less you need, the more versatile you are, right? Mm. And so if you don't need a bed, you instantly are more more versatile and more free yeah. to travel, to move around, be spontaneous. Yeah. Um, and the same goes with stuff. So like with, with Indonesia, you know, it was mostly, we just had one carry-on backpack and um, and that sort of made things much, much easier. Uh, and then essentialism was, was a bit more of a, a focused effort. That was, I, I for, for most of my, well, probably noticed the most during uni, the, the four or five years after high school, I was very <laughs> good at, committing to lots of things very little and spreading myself very thin, mm-hmm. going a little bit in every direction. And I just got to a point and realized it wasn't really, um, it wasn't that great. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's a richness that, of life that you don't tap into. Mm. There's a, a fullness of different things that you just don't get. Mm. And you're sort of only doing things half-hearted. And, and so when I took the gap, took my first gap year and um, the one where I went to Indonesia, I realized that, if I didn't be very, very careful about how I spent the gap year, it would just disappear. Mm. I would just say yes to this, yes to this, yes to this, yes to this. Before I knew it, I wouldn't have really done anything and the whole year would be done. And so I took a month, about a month. I was working at the time. took a month, blocked out all my commitments, said no to catching up to basically everybody, um, didn't do anything and just sat in my room and just planned and thought. And and essentialism, I I listened to that as an audiobook throughout that period. September of Solitude, as Esther um, <laughs> I the phrase. aptly named it. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, I just, I just sort of planned stuff. I thought a lot about my priorities, about how I spent my time. Uh, essentialism, yeah, sort of provided the foundation for that. Mm. And just practice becoming very good at, at making um, key focus decisions around different things. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Susan and I have had a bit of a discussion around what it's like to say no and our own kind of journey of practicing doing that. Yeah. How was that process for you, especially yeah. at the beginning? Yeah, the beginning was hard. Saying no sucks, <laughs> especially when you're not good at it. Mm. it. It sucks when you think you're not good at it. It sucks the less the more you do it. Yeah, <laughs> It's like a skill, right? The better you get, the, the less... Um, when you're new to it, it sucks. Mm. The, the interesting thing was having the month September of Solitude was um, sort of this self-fulfilling prophecy in the sense that in, in taking a month... To learn how to say no, I was saying no to everyone in order to have that time to say to learn how to say no, mm. and so I was, I was already, already saying no to people. Practice in itself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, so it was quite quite funny. <clears throat> it gets uh, what I, what I realised personally, and what I, I think other people. It, what's a pretty common pattern is that the the negative ramifications of saying no are mostly in your head. The the potential breakdown of relationships. The potential label that people will give you, the the loss of value of things that you miss out on, most of it's most of it's in your head. And so once you say no a few times, and you realise that the world keeps spinning, your friends are okay, yeah. um, nothing's collapsed and like melted away like you thought it would. Yeah, you're like, oh, hang on a second, yeah, this <laughs> this kind of works. And then and then add on to that when you get to invest in a few things well, mm-hmm. then you get to you, you sort of get to experience what that the richness of that and um yeah it just becomes easier it, it's still it's still a skill that you've it's still a muscle that you've got to strengthen mm. um mm. but yeah it, it becomes it becomes easier and and it also enables you to say yes to things more right or, or more fully yeah like i would have people i'll go to events and people would other people would get there early chat to people stay there afterwards chat to people organize things hang out whatever and i would be coming late and leaving early and 
I always thought like, oh man, it'd be so good to, you know, this is eventually important, all these people here are really cool, or I'd love to make, build some connections. Mm. I was thinking like, oh, I'd love to come early and just sort of hang around and then have the time to do something afterwards. But I never did, you know, I was, I was running in 10 minutes late and then bouncing yeah. as soon as it finished. Mm. Yeah. And so back to the essentialism idea, saying no to other things allows you to say yes to other things more fully. Mm. And that's, um, that's really key. Mm. Yeah. It's like you have the freedom. I think so often we think, oh, if I open myself up to all the different things, I'm giving myself the freedom of exploring all the different things. But mm. in reality, you're like missing out on like, yeah, the things that you actually really want to do. Mm. I feel like so many people are trapped in the, um, like the thoughts in their head that, oh, if I'm saying no to these things, then I'm de- denying myself a freedom. Mm-hmm. Whereas in reality, it's like, oh, actually, no, I'm allowing myself to fully ex- um, experience the things that I really do want to do and really do enjoy. Yeah. The, the, one of the big problems is that was that I found with myself, and I think that's fairly common, is often when you say notice when you say yes to something, you're comparing it with not doing anything. And so the the, the trade off in your head is do this thing or stay at home and waste my time, you know, or, or not do it, right? Yeah. So it's do it or not do it. When the reality is, it's always a trade off. So it's do this thing or do this other thing. But often that comparison isn't made, mm-hmm. and that's when uh, people feel like they're losing something if they're saying no. When actually you're spending the same amount of time, um, you're just spending it differently. Yeah. And that's really key. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it also, I mean, saying no just gives you more time to rest before you get burnt out. Mm. It gives you time to be spontaneous. Um, it gives you time to be more creative with things. Whereas when you're constantly on the go, you just sort of, yeah, you just burn both ends of the candle. Mm. I would like cover the candle in petrol and then like <laughs> throw a match at it and just watch it burn. That was, that was what it felt like. <laughs> <laughs> It's a very vivid imagery. (laughs) (laughs) So now that you've been doing this for a few years, what are some of the things you feel like are important to you? You've decided to be like, oh, okay, actually, this is something that I do want to invest in and, um, yeah, spend my time and money and effort focusing on. Yeah. I would say I still feel like I'm getting good at putting into practice. I mean, so I made this... Sort of had this month of thinking, thought about essentialism and other stuff, and then, uh, and then I just left the country <laughs> and spent, spent all this time locked down in a co- in a um, base in Indonesia. So I was I was essentialist by default. Um, <laughs> I didn't really have to work too hard at it. And then I came back to Australia and we were in lockdown for twelve months. Um, essentialist by default. Again. Essentialist by default again. So <laughs> I kind of had it handed handed to me on a plate. Um, so the question was, what are some of the things I have? Decided to focus on. Yeah. Yeah. What are your mm. values and things that are important to you? Things that you would say no to, to say yes to these things instead. Mm. Mm. Yep. So I, I think one of the things I, so I'm, I'm planning to head into the field of, of journalism, doing life coaching at the moment. I studied science as my undergrad. One of the things I found when studying was, so, so whatever you're studying or doing for work, that's, that's obviously... Uh, a very big part of your life, you know, mm. like a third of your waking hours or whatever. Yeah. Um, so it's a big deal. And, you know, especially in the early stages, hopefully it's something you're quite passionate about. I always found that when I was studying, so I would, I would do the bare minimum. I would only read what I had to, if I even read it. Um, you know, I'd watch lectures on two times speed or faster, <laughs> depending on the lecturer. Uh, and, and it was sort of like go through it doing the least amount of work. Um, which, you know, freed up my time for other stuff. And I don't I don't necessarily see that as completely bad, completely evil. Um, but there would be these other students who would have, like, been doing the reading and then found something interesting and then gone off and just read something else about it. Mm. Or they read an extra chapter of the thing because they were really like the author and what they were trying to say. And, mm. and I always, similar with the, you know, the people staying at events, it was always like, oh, that's, that's actually really cool and you do really care about this and you've given yourself the time to explore it follow your curiosity and you're learning much more and you've got a much better grasp on the concepts and you really are owning this and that's mm. and and you know again you need so hopefully it's something you're quite passionate about and, and that's really cool like and i would love to to really sink into some topics that i that i'm interested in that i'm investing in uh and so i think that's that's one of the big shifts so i'll be more intentional about spending time doing things say in this case related to to journalism and even if it's just reading casually or just mucking around with stuff, often the early stuff in a in a hobby or in a pursuit can feel like a waste of time. Mm. Uh, it doesn't feel very productive, right? Like first time using a camera, you just got to spend a lot of time just 
you know, playing around with it, doing nothing really, mm. and just trying different things, mucking mm. up with the settings. Um, and so it can feel kind of unproductive, but that's, that's sort of what you need to get started. Anyway, so, so being more specific about carving out time for that. Mm. Um, in terms of some like relationships, it's that's just a, um, you just realize the older you get that the less time you have to, to do different things. And so it's just about um, sort of being disciplined in, in that and accepting the reality of it, I think, is, is the hardest part. Mm. Um, and then also some other key areas. Like, you know, I, I would always sort of have an interest in fitness, but my, my running was pretty haphazard or, you know, it would come and go and, and just being more disciplined about setting aside time for that. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Life coaching, making more time for that. <laughs> and so now, now I sort of have more time to like, oh, watch this 20-minute lecture. Oh, that was a really interesting concept. Oh, I actually feel like I have the time and space to Google it, read a bit about it, mm. find out who some of the key thought leaders are in this space. Yeah. What psychology does it come from? Um. You know, which is great. Whereas before it would be like, okay, sweet, done, tick it off, next thing, go. Mm. Yeah, it's nice. Mm, that's great. I like that. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I think that shift in mindset is really important as well. Is that something mm. that you had to be self-aware and identify in yourself and then take those active steps to be able to improve in that area. Mm. Um, but talking about life coaching, um, <laughs> that's, that's also another topic that we wanted to talk about. Can you yeah. tell our audience a bit about what life coaching is and what, <clears throat> and what drew you towards it? Yeah. Life coaching is the, the simplest probably definition. I think the best one that I've heard is, is helping someone get from where they are to where they want to be. And so it's, it's helping people navigate decisions or behavior or um, problems or, or strategy or different things in order to advance in some area of their life. And um, it's it's basically human behavior. So, so at, people who coach would say it's becoming, you're becoming an expert in human behavior. That's what you're doing. Mm. <clears throat> so probably a good example actually is, so I w- I've been doing some reciprocal coaching with a, a lady in the US and she's a, She's a lecturer in psychology. She's a, done a PhD in psychology at a university in the States and, and she's doing this life coaching course. And so I, I asked her what she thought were the key differences between um, like psychological therapy or, or counseling and, and life coaching. Mm. <clears throat> she said that there were two main distinctions. One is that seeing a psychologist um, or receiving counseling is typically bringing someone from a place of, of dysfunction to a place of function. So working with some sort of mental illness or, or other things that's quite quite crippling. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas coaching is typically working with people who are already fairly functional and then sort of wanting to become uh, more skilled in the area or advanced in an area. Right. The other main difference was in psychology, they spend a lot of time looking back and treating things in the past and, and coaching is mostly looking forward. Um, and it, they're definitely, coaching is not a substitute for psychology. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that it's mm-hmm. it's um, mm-hmm. it's in any way replaces it at all. Uh, but it's that they're sort of the key, key differences. Uh, I think what drew me to it, <laughs> it was just, I remember saying to someone after starting coaching, it was like, oh, yeah, when I coach people, it feels like interacting with my friends how I how I always did, but now I, I don't feel bad about it and I don't feel interrogated by it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's just like interacting with them, but in the way that that's uh, where everyone's like, yep, this is how it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I'm drawn to it because I I'm generally just very curious. Uh, and about people in particular. And coaching is mostly asking questions. So you're effectively never giving advice. You're just asking questions. Yeah. Um, I, I've seen in the past the people have so much to learn from their own experience and their own understanding that they haven't learned simply because they haven't asked the right questions or thought about it the right way. Mm. And you can get someone to learn a lot about themselves or about their context or, or whatever simply from... Uh, sort of playing with the way they think, asking the right questions, throwing out suggestions, highlighting contradictions in their thinking. And it's, it's amazing how much a person can grow with that. And there's something super valuable about being able to help someone so significantly with just a conversation. Mm. You don't need any other resources, any other tools. Yeah. Just by asking questions and guiding, you can, people can really grow significantly. And that's super exciting. When you see it happen, it's, yeah, it's quite amazing. Yeah, wow. Um, so, for our listeners out there who don't necessarily have a life coach for themselves, <laughs> um, do you have any tips for principles of a good question 
um, that they can kind of use in their own lives to help figure things out more for themselves or good questions that they can be asking their friends and also help them um, move from one place in their life to another. Mm. Yeah, sure. We, we use lots of different frameworks, lots of different models, um, lots of different types of questions that, that are useful in different times. Probably some key ones that are easy to implement. One is this idea of of chunking up. So often when we're working with someone and they give a reason for something, the, the, the goal is to try and draw it up to the value or underlying belief that's behind that. Mm. So, so if you imagine like every decision <clears throat> that a person makes or every behavior that they exhibit, there's sort of a, a pile of, of things that it comes from. Um, so it might be some combination of emotions and beliefs and values and identity and, and things like that. And rarely the, the issue, if it's some sort of problem, is the thing that they're seeing. That's usually not the problem. It's coming from something deeper, yeah. more foundational. And so chunking up is is saying for what purpose are you doing that or why why are you doing that? Uh, and focusing on going through those layers of, of emotions and mindsets and getting to the core. And so we, for example, in coaching, we talk about three universal fears. And so often if someone is, is experiencing some sort of negative emotion, <clears throat> especially fear, but often most negative emotions, they draw back to one of these three universal fears. But almost or very rarely is that thought about, is that fear thought about in the moment of that experience. Mm. And so it's, it's often completely different. And, and most people will discover when they're chunked up, so to speak, they discover that for the first time. So when they when they get to a point and they say, yeah, actually, the reason I do that is because of this, and then you keep going and they say, yeah, actually, it's a fear of this. Most of them are like, I never even thought about it like that. Mm-hmm. And so the way you approach it is completely different, right? Um, for example, procrastination is a common one that people mm-hmm. come come with. And, you know, you, you can chunk someone on procrastination and next thing you know, they're like, oh, it was out of a fear of of not being loved by some people that are close to me. And... Like all of a sudden, it's a very different problem, right? Mm, yeah. And so that's really significant. So, so asking for what purpose or why. Mm. Um, another good basic strategy is if you see any contradictions in someone's behavior and their thoughts, mm. so any cognitive dissonance, or you see any, any, any um, difference in two different things that they've said, mm. highlighting that and asking why. Can you give an example? Yeah, sure. So um, I was... I'll, this is based off a real example, but I'll change the details for the um, confidentiality. So I was, was coaching someone and they were saying they find it difficult to uh, play guitar. <clears throat> so that they wanted to get better at guitar, but they weren't. And and they, they were just procrastinating. And so you know, I went through some stuff around procrastination and we actually got to a, one of the three universal fears and, and sort of chatted about that. And then so like, I, I asked them, and this is this is someone who is is uh, in a very high field, you know, st- studying a very difficult course, like, like clearly very intelligent. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I said to them, okay, so what, like, what's going through your head when you see the guitar? And they said, oh, I feel like it's just, um, it's hard. Like that's why, I, that's why I don't feel like just going over and picking up the guitar because it's difficult. So, okay, so, so, so when you play the guitar, is that difficult? And they said, no. <laughs> so, okay. And they're, they're sort of laughing at themselves going, hang on a second. I just said it was, I felt like it was hard. Mm. And then as soon as I was asked if it was hard, the answer was obviously no. Okay. So let's try again. Like Let's, let's, let's play around with it and find it. Mm. And things like that. People often, there's so many um, assumptions and sort of blind spots that, mm. that people think they know things. But once, they're, once it's put to the test, mm. it's very, very wrong. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's probably, that's probably the best example. I've learned a lot just from listening to that yeah. as well. I feel like it's so helpful for like everyone to be thinking about it because so often we like brush thoughts aside or we're like, oh, we just assume that things are the way they are because that is how it is or because someone else said mm. that. Um, and we don't really stop to think about our thoughts and if we're like, like how true they actually are. Mm. Yep. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Another one is like um, back to the saying no thing. Mm. You know, coach people and say, something, okay, so why, why do you find it difficult saying no? Um, they say, oh, because my... My friends will, you know, they'll see me as a, as a less friend or, or, or not being as, as good a friend as I could be. It's like, okay. Um, do you have any friends that have said no to coming to your catch-ups? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. How do you see them? Oh, fine. Like, they're, they're great. Was, there's no problem at all. It's like, okay. So you just said you were afraid of your friends thinking less of you because you can go somewhere. And yet all the friends that say no to you 
there's no issue with that at all. In fact, you respect it and appreciate it. Okay, like let's you know, <laughs> let's unpack that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and there are lots of things like that. Like when you coach someone, they come up all the time. Mm, that's so cool. Yeah. So they'd, they'd be my two um, things to start with, I think. Mm, yeah. That must be like so empowering to be able to like walk people through that process. Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, it's, it's a real, it's a real buzz. Like honestly, mm. it's it's great fun, and, and seeing it. You know, seeing it tick over in their mind and seeing things change just through the one conversation. Yeah. Right? It's, yeah, it's quite remarkable. And just seeing all those things, like often, you know, they'll have one, oh, the guitar is hard. Okay. Do you find it hard? No. Okay. Um, or like what else might be going on? Uh, I, I don't think I have time for the guitar. Okay. Like how much time is it going to take? Uh, I don't know, maybe maybe 20 minutes. Okay. Like what, what do you usually do if you don't play the guitar? Oh, I usually go on Instagram. Do you, do you do you think it's productive? No, 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 no. I'm trying to stop Instagram. Okay, okay. So hang on a second. So, so it's not hard, even though I said it was hard. Um, it's not it's not taking up time that you need for other valuable things, and and they just keep coming up, you know, and, and you just keep going, and and eventually, hopefully, you get to the point where they realize what is actually going on. Yeah. And yeah, it's remarkable to watch that um, on people, and and especially when you're coaching someone regularly, and they come back and they're like, oh yeah, since last time this this and this happened, da, da, da. yeah, it's great. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> pod and us, <laughs> with us about your life yeah my um, pleasure. we're really glad we made it to your essential list um yep no absolutely um is there anything else that you wanted to add for our listeners before we sign off yeah we're here for a good time not a long time <laughs> that's uh that's no. a good way of thinking about life i think We'll catch you guys in the next call combo. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Always here for a good time, not a long time.